Good morning, and the conversation continues here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. It's WIP Sunday. It's a little chilly out there, but it promises to be a beautiful WIP Sunday. So take 94 WIP with you no matter where you go. Always good conversation, whether it's chilly, warm, or anything in between. And we're going to get right to work this morning here on WIP Sunday as I welcome Sylvia Brown, Brown, as in Brown University, her new book, Grappling with Legacy. Good morning, Sylvia Brown. Good morning, Peter. Nice to be with you. Thank you. Brown is a very important name in Rhode Island, isn't it? It is, yes. A lot of money, a lot of prestige, a lot of history. There was a lot of money, a lot less today, but prestige, history, legacy, absolutely. Is it a burden to have that legacy? It's really what you make of it. I mean, we all have a legacy, whether it's our parents or, in my case, ancestors of 400 years ago. The family goes back 400 years? 400 years. They arrived in 1638, yes. My goodness. Who are some of the names we might recognize? I don't know if you would recognize many of them because very little has been written about the Brown family, and that's one of the many reasons I wrote my book. Um, and yet uh, Nicholas Brown II, who, who gave his name to Brown University, was the first person in America to really believe that a university could be an agent of social change, which is something that's completely part of our American ethos. Last year, American institutions of higher education received $41 billion because we Americans really believe that universities can transform society. And that started with this man, something most people don't know. Well, but when Nicholas Brown had that idea, it was revolutionary, wasn't it? It was revolutionary. It was revolutionary. And I explain in the book how he came to that idea. He came to it because he was very unhappy with society around him. So people have been thinking that the world was going to hell in a handbasket for a very long time. Amen to that. Um, what else in terms of the Brown history might, might we want to think about? Well, in the, uh, the Browns initially uh, were successful as merchants in the 18th century in an Atlantic economy that depended on the slave trade. And they were not slave traders per se, they dabbled in it, uh, but they were in a world uh, which was fueled by slavery. In the 19th century, they became manufacturers. In fact, it was a Brown, Moses Brown, who built the first textile mill in America in partnership with an Englishman who'd snuck over with the secrets to building a spinning factory. And um, so that was another landmark event that people probably don't know much about. And of course, in the 19th century, and particularly in Rhode Island, the textile industry depended on child labor, another dark uh, period in our history. But uh, what I'm trying to show is that the story of the Brown family transcends these dark periods and that there was a lot of philanthropy and a lot of good that evolved over the centuries that really, to me, uh, mark my family. You mentioned two men, history. 
What about herstory? Any women? Yes, but you know, it's terrible because they left so few traces. And I have worked very hard uh, to look, to read between the lines and to understand some of the remarkable women uh, in my family. Uh, in the 18th century, for example, women ran shops, ran businesses, um, and were quite uh, powerful uh, because they were often widowed and they would have to keep things going for their families. In the 19th century, and particularly in the Victorian era, women became more relegated to the home and um, were less economically powerful. But there's some amazing women in the late 19th and early 20th century in my family. Uh, my great-grandmother, for example, was a great champion of women's right to vote. Uh, my grandmother was a great collector of uh, books and prints on military uniforms and put together the greatest collection in America on the topic and was quite a dynamo. But um, unfortunately, the business papers for which my family is famous tended to be kept mostly by men, and I found that very frustrating. I'm sure. What led you to write the book? The book initially uh, started from uh, an event. Uh, in 1995, my father chose to give away most of his inheritance to Brown University. And less than 10 years later, the university appointed the first African-American president of an Ivy League university. And the first thing she did, Ruth Simmons, was appoint a committee on slavery and justice to examine the origins of the university. And I sat in the first public forum in a packed auditorium when a speaker got up on stage and announced there were no good Browns. And for me, that was a punch in the stomach because I had grown up in a family steeped in philanthropy. I had been taught to admire my ancestors. And suddenly, I wondered if I had been fed a pack of lies. So I decided to research my 18th century ancestors. But then I discovered there were 10 other generations. I'm the 11th generation of the Browns in Rhode Island. And as I was researching these 10 other generations, I saw a fascinating evolution of attitudes towards giving and of, of uh, changes in how Americans viewed uh, charity and then philanthropy. And I decided that that was really a major story that needed to be told. So I decided to write that story. It took me 12 years because I'm not a historian and our family archive is one of the biggest in America. But uh, I finally made it. Congratulations for that achievement. You have, I'm um, sure, other relatives hanging out. What do they think about the book? Oh, they're, um, they're delighted that I took it upon myself to do this. Um, there are not many of us left in Rhode Island. Uh, certainly my father's generation is, is thrilled. And... Uh, uh, people um, people are, are really interested in, in what I have uncovered. Uh, Rhode Island is a quirky little place. It, it's always punched well above its size, and uh, its 
history is fascinating and um, there are a lot of parallels between some of the eras I described, particularly the Jacksonian era in the 1820s and 30s and the America of today. So people love those sorts of comparisons. As you research the family, any black sheep? Oh, yes. Oh, plenty. Um, and one of the themes I've researched, because I'm so interested in, in philanthropy, is the relationship between children and their parents. Um, there was the son of Nicholas Brown II, the man who gave so much money to Brown University, thought his father was a lunatic and should be locked up for giving so much money away. And uh, that makes me think of the children of Warren Buffett or, or Bill Gates, who know that their parents have chosen to give most of their money away. How, how must they feel? And I know that a lot of parents of wealth in the U.S. today are thinking about giving most of their money away during their lifetime, and it's made me wonder how their children feel. So um, this angry son uh, is just an example of how children felt about their parents engaging in philanthropy, you know, 150 years ago. How has our perspective on philanthropy changed? I mean, as I think about my social welfare history, originally it was religious obligation, and then it changed out of that, didn't it? Yes, there, there are several eras in American giving. In the 18th, in the 17th and 18th century, people really believed that uh, society was hierarchical and that that was the natural order of things. You had a pyramid, and the people at the top of the pyramid were responsible for the welfare of those below, and that you could uh, alleviate this economic inequality through, uh, through charity. So there was a sense of sort of public benevolence, but it was very self-interested. My ancestors in the 18th century who did so much for Providence and put up some very important buildings that still stand today and brought a university to the town, they really did it because it helped them. It helped them economically by putting Providence on the map. It helped them socially. Uh, it allowed them to be viewed as gentlemen, but it was not altruistic. And then in the 19th century, you have this great uh, societal revolution that took place in America, and for the first time, a real thirst for equality and the notion of hard work and merit uh, are introduced to America, which is completely different from the colonial society. And you have the arrival of immigrants, you have factories, so you have a, uh, an underclass of dispossessed factory workers. And, and so you have this great uh, chaotic society springing up. And the reaction to that is the quest for morality. So you have thousands and thousands of little uh, groups, little uh, associations and charities springing up to start Bible classes and Sunday schools and build churches and send missionaries out. And there was this sense that good morality could solve society's problems. Well, obviously, that didn't work. And America became a very violent society. And so suddenly, people realized they'd better figure out what the cause 
of social problems might be. And you have the first scientific approaches, which lead to the creation of the first schools for the blind, the first attempts at uh, reforming juvenile delinquency, the first asylums for the insane. And then you get to the Gilded Age. And you have people like Andrew Carnegie in his famous uh, article entitled Wealth in 1889, who calls on his fellow millionaires to use their business skills for the good of society and to build the ladders on which the aspiring can rise, which means museums and hospitals and universities and parks and scientific foundations. And these uh, Gilded Age millionaires are the first to create foundations that are run by professional staff and to really look at the scientific causes of problems and to approach what they call the business of benevolence. And then in the 20th century, of course, you have the World Wars and the Depression which for the first time causes the government to intervene and the government realizes it can't do it alone. So in 1917, you have the deductibility of charitable donations. But the thing about the government uh, intervening, and this became particularly true after Lyndon Johnson's Great Society, is that it frees up money for philanthropists to support the arts and culture. And my family became very involved in supporting the arts and culture in the 20th century. And then in the 21st century, we're going through a second Gilded Age in philanthropic giving. Last year, Americans gave $390 billion to charitable organizations. But the big donors of today are very, very different from the past. They're very interested in impact. They're really interested in changing the world. They're making big gifts uh, to make to cause systemic change. They're measuring their impact, and um, it's a, it's a very different attitude. And probably the, the greatest factor is that they're giving their money away in their lifetime because they're really engaging in their philanthropy and they want to see change happen under their eyes. So a fascinating evolution that's mirrored by the story of my family because the Browns exemplify each of the chapters that I've just described to you right up until what I'm doing today. And what are you doing? So I've decided I don't have the resources of my ancestors, so I've decided the best way I can leverage uh, the skills and the experience I have is by helping others give more effectively, more strategically, more thoughtfully. And I've launched uh, an initiative called Uplifting Journeys, which is courses uh, and other products. I take uh, people away for five days of learning about how to give better. Uh, I teach them the fundamentals of smart giving and I offer them curated volunteering experiences so that they learn as they do. And I hope that people return home inspired and equipped to give better to any cause anywhere. Hopefully you sent a copy of your book, Grappling with Legacy, to that dummy who said there were no good browns. 
Uh, she she knows about it. Good. She knows about it, and unfortunately, um, there's a video recording of the time when she said it, so she can't pretend that it wasn't said. Yes. And Sylvia, I need to take time for a few commercials. So if you'll stay with me, please. We'll be Absolutely. back in just we'll be back in just a bit. The WIP okay. Time 717. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Sylvia Brown, author of the new book, Grappling with Legacy. Her legacy, the Brown family, of which she's a member, major family up there in Rhode Island. Sylvia, as you wrote the book and researched it. How did your perception of your family and its history change? Did it? It did. It made me incredibly proud of them. But I just wanted to add something else, which is we've been talking a lot about Rhode Island, but I have a very strong Pennsylvania and Philadelphia connection and that I'm a proud graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. I was the first in my family to not go to Brown or Harvard, and I went to Penn, which was quite a revolution. And then my son followed in my footsteps and went to Penn as well and graduated just last year. So I've got a big spot for Pennsylvania and for Philadelphia in my heart. Wonderful. Thank you for telling me that. All right. How did it change, though, your family, your perception? Of the family? Yes. Well, I didn't know much about them, and I certainly, I knew a little bit about the 18th century, but, you know, we didn't sit around the dinner table talking about our ancestors. Uh, What I found quite fascinating was learning about the man who gave Brown University his name and what was going on in the 19th century, because like most people in school, I'd learned about the revolution and then fast forward to the Civil War, and I never understood the growing pains that America went through in the days of the early republic and the role my family had played there in, in bringing industrialization and uh, banking, insurance, railroads, lands out west, all of that came to life uh, through, through the story of my family. So I found that quite fascinating. And then seeing this evolution uh, in giving, in attitudes towards giving, and this sort of sense of, of duty, but also pleasure and, and joy that they got about uh, investing in their community and seeing Providence and Rhode Island thrive. That sense of joy in giving, something I wish more people had, certainly. Yes, well, I'm working hard to do something about that, absolutely. Now, you pass this legacy on to your children. How do they feel about it? Have you ever asked them? Well, I've, um, I've, I've, uh, tried very hard from the moment the children were born. Their father worked for the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugee, and they spent their early childhood in some pretty exotic places, uh, Croatia during the Yugoslav War and the Pakistan-Afghanistan border uh, during the rise of the Taliban, and then um, Slovakia when the Schengen Agreement was applied and it became the gateway to Europe. And then every year I, I take them to a developing country. And uh, so naturally they've sort of uh, absorbed uh, some of my interest in, uh, in economic development and, and they follow what I'm doing. And, and I think um, they have something in their DNA and then I try to guide their interests uh, further. 
a history like yours of your family, both a pleasure and in a sense of obligation, isn't it? It is. It is. And the great dilemma today is, for, for my generation, is do we continue to support the same causes and issues that the family uh, has been supporting for the last hundred years, which in our case are really history, heritage, preservation, the church, education, or do we branch into new areas? And I think my cousins and I are very interested in branching into new areas. Uh, some of my cousins are very involved in environmental issues. Um, the family still owns uh, lands, farmland out west, and we've branched into organic farming. Um, I myself am very interested in impact investing, harnessing market forces to solve social issues, and I'm very involved in an organization in Rhode Island that supports social entrepreneurs and tries to help those who want to help the community by giving them the business skills they need. So we are moving into a new chapter, but then that's what the family's been doing for 400 years, and I don't see anything wrong with that. No, certainly, Sylvia Brown, author of Grappling with Legacy, continues a long-held tradition of her family, the Brown family of Rhode Island, in her work today. Sylvia, what do you want people to think after they've read the book? What do I want to think after they read I want them to be, um, first of all, I want them to be very proud of being Americans because America really leads the way in uh, thinking deeply and strategically about giving. And uh, my family is just, uh, an example. It's just I use it to illustrate something which is a, it's such an important part of the American ethos. And now that there's so many new countries in the world with uh, newly wealthy individuals, you know, I'm thinking of China or Mexico or Russia or Brazil or all those countries or India, which has more billionaires than America, all these wealthy individuals have something to learn from us about good giving. And that's why I'm working so hard to make sure that Americans become smarter about their giving. And I'm also very interested in what's being done to teach the newly wealthy in these other countries I've mentioned to be good donors, because that is so important to making a difference. And, and I'd like to say thank you to Sylvia Brown for her family's history, for her own good work, and for the new book, Grappling with Legacy. Thank you, Sylvia Brown. Thanks, Peter. It was great my, talking with you. My pleasure. And it's WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. The WIP time, 725. And we'll be back in just a bit. And we're back in our final interview this morning is with Anna Ramonde. Anna is the author of a new book, Conversations with Mary. Messages of Love, Healing, Hope, and Unity for Everyone. It's an intriguing book and with an intriguing history. Good morning, Anna Ramonde. Good morning. You say that as a psychic, spiritual counselor, and medium, you communicate with the Virgin Mary. I do, and I have been communicating with her since I've been a very small child. How did, that, how did it first happen? How was the first communication? I um, I lived in suburban 
Long Island, and it was spring, and I was outside. I was four or five years old, and I um, I saw her. She came to me. It was, I remember the feeling, and she told me that she would always be with me. Did you ever wonder why you? I asked her, why me? And she told me because I was open to receive her. She comes to everyone. It's just fear that blocks people from really hearing her, feeling her, communicating with her. And it's the level of receiving. Since I was so young and she came to me and I accepted her, there was no going back. She continued through my life to come to me and speak with me. And how do you use that ability that you have in your work today? Well, I, um, I see people every day, and I'm a healer. So um, I bring messages forward to them, whether it's from their loved ones or from Mary, that will help them with this journey in this life, which can be so difficult. I give seminars about Mary. I speak about Mary. She wants to be known to the world as the mother of all humanity, not just a segment of humanity. So her message to you is not one just of Christianity? That's correct. She wants to come to everyone. She has told me that in order for this world to heal, we must recognize ourselves as one. We were one. We came through one creator. We share a vibration with God, the creator, and with each other, no matter, no matter where we live, what we believe, the boundaries between us need to be broken down. Hmm. Then there'll be peace. Is she encouraging for this world? Does she think it's possible? Yes, she does. Um, and she talks about that a lot. You know, she also says that we have to pray. You know, and whether we're praying the prayers of our religion or whether we're just in communication with God or showing God's love by compassion and um, kindness, we can reach that. We really can. But we have to do this in, in unity. But it's like a domino effect. So if one person starts, it will spread throughout the world, which is why she wanted this book out. It was very important that her messages be out in a way that people could understand. Tell me about the book, Conversations with Mary. Um, well, I think it's a very pretty book, but I don't think I wrote it. So, um, so I can say that without patting myself on the back. Um, she speaks about so many different things. She speaks about reincarnation. She speaks about how to communicate with God. She speaks about what the soul is, what enlightenment is, what God really is, why she's coming to us, you know, and how she's coming to us, because she's coming to so many people, not just me. You know, people have been seeing her for years. Visionaries have seen her. People are feeling her. People are talking about her. Um, you know, she's saying, you know, open your eyes, awaken. Awaken to what's in front of you, because what's in front of you is pretty great. You know, this vibration, the unseen, is pretty great, and it comes through that which we can see, see with our soul, see with our mind, see with our eyes. But at the same time, Anna Ramundi, we have problems with North Korea, mm -hmm. problems with Al-Qaeda, mm -hmm. war in that's Afghanistan. Not by, but that's not from God. 
that's from humankind. You know, she talks about um, the fight for humankind for supremacy and power because our eyes are off God. The only power there is is God. And yet, as, as humankind has evolved through the eons, we have turned toward this fight to be better. And it's all born out of fear. And fear is the opposite of love, and God is love. So it's, it's, it's circular. It's not from God. None of this is from God. This is from us. We have free will. We are beings of free will, and very often we go against the nature of divinity. And that's what has happened with the world. We placed our faith and our hope in human beings, and our faith and hope should be in God. That ability to use free will is a double-edged sword that was given to us, mm -hmm. and how we use it is problematic sometimes. Absolutely. Anna Ramondi, author of Conversations with Mary, I need you to stay with me. I've got to run a few commercials. Okay. We'll be back in just a bit. The WIP time, 737. And we're back. It's conversation. It's WIP Sunday. It's WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, spiritual counselor, medium Anna Ramonde, now an author. Her new book, Conversations with Mary. Messages of love, healing, hope, and unity for everyone. I'm so happy to be here speaking Th with you. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. Um, people who are faithful, religious, are going to buy into your book, I'm sure. People who are on the edge, questioning, probably. But they're going to be those people who say, sounds like a nice woman, but I don't believe they come from Mary. What do you say to them? I'm not here to convert anybody. I'm here to spread her message. You know, I ask everybody to have an open mind, and more than that, an open heart. It's coming from Mary. It's not coming from me. I, there's nothing I can do to really prove that. If you read the book, you will hear um, a different cadence in her voice than my voice as it's written. I'm not a writer. I'm a medium. So what I, what I felt, I wrote, and that's it. You know, just open up your heart you know, feel her words, feel the energy as you're reading the book. The book also has meditations in it. And um, do the meditations. Open yourself up to all that is because at this point in the history of the world, we need her. We need help. We need this messenger of love. So going into it can only help. My prayer is that people really open up their hearts. Because if they open up their hearts, we can turn this world around. From your lips to God's ears. Huh? Mm -hmm. Can be. So for those people who are skeptical, you're saying it's okay to be skeptical, but think about it. Yeah, it's okay to be skeptical. You know, I see people all the time who come to see me who are skeptics. You know, when a skeptic, a skeptic turns around, they, you know, it's, it's, it's a miracle. It's, it's magnificent. You know, because their, their intellectual mind is saying one thing and they're prodding through and they're trying to figure it out. But once they get there, those are usually the ones that start really spreading the word in a big way. So, yeah, be, be skeptical, but pick up the book and see what you get out of it, you know. And, you know, maybe one chapter makes sense. You know, maybe the whole book makes sense. You know, you have to embrace it. And you have to open up your heart. This is a book about 
bringing peace not only to the world but to yourself because we can't start with the world unless we look within and you know we are these beautiful creations that we don't recognize that we don't always take care of the mind body and soul we need to love ourselves and be compassionate to ourselves and move out of that fear of the unknown or just fear in general because lately we are people of fear we live in this fear and, and that's that keeps us away from all that is good there's a line from the poet langston hughes life ain't no crystal stair and lord knows that's true if it's a crystal mm-hmm. stair it's chipped and cracked right but you know this is life and we we come here to learn our lessons whatever the lessons may be and some of them are easy and some of them not so easy and then you know you have other people you know doing things that are not in the line you know with the highest vibration of god not good and we have to deal with that but we should always stand in this place of love and faith and and give ourselves up to what is good and be good people you know it's so it's it's so easy to say be a good person so easy and yet you know you look out your window or you know you look at yourself and you think wow that was not a good thing you know and you have to try to rectify it in some way but that's okay because we can rectify we can change the course well there are a lot of temptations in life and it's easy yeah. to give in yeah there's evil there's evil in the world you know there's a yin and a yang to everything and there's a lot of temptations you know go back to the golden calf you know the temptations in life are usually have to do with things that um are of power bringing ourselves up our ego narcissism or things we can hold in our hands and it's okay it's okay to like nice things but it's not okay to worship them it's not okay to make these things you know our god and adore them and that's a fine line you know um people want more and more and more and there's no satisfaction and that more and more and more will exist because they don't realize that the material things of this world are not really satisfying it's beyond that way beyond that and once people realize that you know they will hopefully you know understand that this great love that created us is embodied within us and that's what we need to share and to worship it's the truth no you know, it's the great truth in your work as a medium mm-hmm. who gives you the messages um you know sometimes it's the angels sometimes it's um people's relatives or their friends who have passed sometimes it's their spirit guides some mary comes through mary's one of my guides so she helps um you know it de- all depends it all depends on who's coming through and really what that person needs people come in to see me and you know a lot of it is about i want to hear from or i want to know um and you know i tell them all the time let's leave aside what you want okay and go into what you need because what you need is really going to help you what you want is nice um but it may not help you often they do get what they what they seek but um but that's not where i'm coming from you know i'm not a telephone line i i say what i feel and that's how it works with the people who come to me and from wherever i'm getting it but it's all from it's all from the realm of love i don't deal with anything else you know whatever's coming through 
is to heal and to help and you know to help people on in this world and this journey which as you said is really tough how do the messages come through does the person have to be there do you touch something of theirs no are you, are you clear audio no um i uh, i meditate before people come to me and i pray for each one of my clients every day and um you know i have pretty much all the you know the clairs going on so um I smell things, I feel things, I just know things. Um, sometimes I, I see their relatives, sometimes I see people who may look like their relatives, and I can describe them that way from my point of reference. Um, it comes through in, in so many ways. I see movies, you know, I'll see a movie go by my head, you know, a, a piece of a lifetime. So it, it comes in a lot of different ways. I I'm, I'm, don't just see it in one way. Sometimes I'll have a dream um, the night before. And like last last week, I had I woke up and I was dreaming that there was a fire, and I couldn't understand this whole fire thing, and it wasn't a great dream. And you know, my first client of the morning, you know, I, I said, okay, who had the fire? And it turned out that um, his grandparents' house had burnt to the ground, and somebody had died. You know, so you know, it comes in so many ways. You know, the spirit world speaks in also in symbols, so a lot of symbols will come through. And I just say whatever, whatever I'm feeling, seeing, hearing, I just say it, even though sometimes, you know, I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, where, what's going on here? Um, I also write as I'm speaking to people, I scribble, because it's the only way to get out of my, my conscious processing mind. So if my hand is moving, then I can, um, I can go into my zone, so to speak, but I'm a fully conscious medium, so... You know, what you see is what you get with me. You know, my personality is still here, and that's what comes through. But the movement really helps me when I'm on stage. I pace. You know, I walk back and forth. You know, I, I do use the stage because um, the more I move, the more I am not focused on thought. So it works. I mean, and it's evolved over the years. You know, I've been – I'm a born medium, so, you know, it wasn't like I have one of these great stories where I got hit on the head, you know, and all of a sudden, woohoo, you know, I'm seeing things. Um, I've been like this my entire life. And I was very fortunate because I was born to people that accepted me for what I was at a time when, you know, people like me were put into institutions. So um, my parents accepted it. Well, I want to say thank you to Anna Ramundi. Anna, do you have a website? I do. It is AnnaRaimondi.com. And check out that website for information on the book, Conversations with Mary, Messages of Love, Healing, Hope, and Unity for Everyone. Thank you, Anna Ramondi. And next time you talk to Mary, please put in a good word for me. Of course. Thank, Thank you. you. And you've been listening to another edition of WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP All Sports Radio. My name's Peter Solomon. Thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer, and to Ann Tideman-Solomon, my dear wife and the associate producer of the show. Couldn't do it without either one of you. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Always interesting and provocative discussion in the living room. Your opinions, Sunny's reactions, I know I'll be listening. Nothing left to say, but see you soon.